Um, uh, did you skip the SAS bit in this? I did, yes. yes. <laughs> How can you skip the like, SAS bit? That's what, that's what the right, people want to hear back, about. Back, 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 when I was 18, <laughs> back when I was 18, uh, we've at long last got to the point where Brexit is now looking like it's working as it broadly should. Do you think that this Conservative Party values freedom? No, no, not, not enough. Well, I've already characterised it, but the, the, the single most important things relate to freedom, mm. right? Um, uh, an assumption the state doesn't know best. I don't want Whitehall managing my identity. I own my identity. If I'm going to have an, identi uh, an identifier, I want it under my control. You may remember early on, uh, some of us said, this looks like a virus that's come from a laboratory. And God, did you get Hillary for saying that online. In banned, the not just Hillary, yeah. banned. And banned. You, you get banned off uh, places and, like And indeed, a Nobel Prize winner. That was the first point, by the way, in this mm. whole process where I, saw, where I saw a French Nobel Prize winner mm. effectively banned from talking about his expert subjects, <laughs> you know. And I thought, you know, this is wrong. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is one of the few MPs in this country left who actually cares about civil liberties. David Davis, welcome to Trigonometry. Yeah, thank you. It's great to have you on the show. We don't normally talk to politicians because it's hard to get a straight answer out of you guys. <laughs> uh, but I get the sense that A, you've kind of... You've been there, you've done it, you've, you've spoken up quite a lot about the things that you care about. And also, unlike many MPs, you actually had a life before politics yeah. and an interesting one. So I thought it would be a great place to start, actually. Tell us about your life and, and how you are where you are. Okay, um, a quick a sort of quick fire summary. Uh, born son of a single mum, 1948, when it was unfashionable. <laughs> Controversial right off the bat. Yeah. Excellent. Um, brought up by my grandparents, whilst I mean, because in those days, you know, you just didn't raise your own child. So she went off to do, do work, to do a job. They raised me in a in a prefab. You know what that is? No. I, Asbestos box in in the Second World War. When a stick of bombs went down the street. Uh, the, the, they would bulldoze the street and put little asbestos boxes, ready-made houses, made in a factory, prefab. Mm. Um, and they're quite famous. And uh, so I grew up in one of those. Everybody thinks it's terrible, you know, awful. Sounds like, sounds like a Monty Python sketch mm. straight off. Actually, it was fantastic because they were well-designed, uh, had uh, nice central heating and so on, and um, uh, albeit rather cramped. And, you know, and, uh, and so I lived just inside the walls of York. If other kids had bouncy castles, I had a real one. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was early life. But then, then my mother got married, uh, my stepfather, working class shop steward, actually. And we lived in a slum in South London, just south of the river from here. Um, literally, two up, two down, no electricity, gas, uh, um, no indoor loo, no bathroom, <laughs> but tin, tin, all that, tin, tin tub and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, nothing unusual. I mean, that, frankly, it sounds terrible, but actually was not that unusual post-war. Um, then uh, passed my 11 plus, most important, probably most important event in my life. Well, I passed my 11 plus, went to grammar school. Right? Um, uh, did well at grammar school, um, uh, enjoyed sports, broke my nose lots of times, um, playing rugby, uh, ended up, I'll foreshorten this, uh, I left home in a rather violent 
disagree with my stepfather, um, ended up going to Warwick University, uh, studied science, molecular sciences, and computer science. Very, pretty much the first computer science degree in the country. While I was there, Margaret Thatcher was the education secretary, and I became the national leader of the conservative students, the, sort of a thing called the Federation of Conservative Students, about 15,000 strong organisation. I get to sit, I get to see her about 10 times a year, I get to see Ted Heath, the Prime Minister, about four times a year, uh, in a funny way, a rather privileged access. Uh, um, then, we, then we lost power uh, in the 70s. Uh, I then went out, I then went to business school, uh, London Business School, uh, took an MBA, became a businessman, um, spent my time working for Tate and Lyle as their troubleshooter, principally, uh, putting right uh, companies losing money, gone wrong. Um, and did that um, until uh, the early 80s, then became an MP in 1987. Um, uh, did you skip the SAS bit in this? I did, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> How can you skip like, the SAS? Where's the SAS bit? That's what, that's what the right, people back, want to hear back, about. Back when, back, back, when I was 18, <laughs> back when I was 18. Uh, now, people don't understand this um, uh, because they all think it's terribly glamorous, and it's not. Um, I needed to earn money. I, basically, I'd left home, yeah. right? Uh, I was supporting myself. I had to get a job. I had to earn money to go to university because in those days were grants, and my parents weren't going to support my grant. They weren't even going to fill in the form, so I couldn't get a grant. So I had to pay my way to university. So one way of doing it um, uh, was to join the Reserve SAS, um, which was um, arduous. Um, <laughs> the pass rate in the selection was 8%. You know, mostly people... This is like the Navy SEALs for our American audience, right? Is hard, that the... Harder. Harder. Yeah, harder. <laughs> um, There's a lot of angry Americans that's now. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, well, if you just take it in objective pass rate terms, mm. Um, mm. Uh, the, the pass rate uh, for, for the SS is, is, is a little lower. Mm. Um, uh, and, of course, the SAS in the first instance was probably the first of the modern special forces. Started in the Second World War, David mm. Sterling and all that. I mean, I knew Sterling. Um, he was still alive when I was around. Um, and we had a very, um, the reserve SAS, not the regulars, had a, a rather dramatic, one level mundane, one level dramatic job. Our primary role in warfare would, in the event of a conflict in Europe, was to jump in behind enemy lines, up to 300 kilometers behind enemy lines, uh, find the targets, maybe create the targets by causing the odd traffic jam, um, uh, tank traffic jam. As, well, as you actually, as, as you've seen in uh, north of Kiev mm. uh, yes. in the last year, in truth, our job was to sort of create that, find it, and target it by Morse code, send in the the, the locations, uh, and call in missile strikes, probably nuclear missile strikes in a in a conventional war in Europe. Um, so survival expectation wasn't very high. <laughs> uh, in fact, I mean, I was when I was doing parachute. School at Abingdon in, in um, yeah, just not just north of Oxford, uh, RAF Abingdon used to used to be there. Um, we'd had this incredibly dramatic um, screw up on the jump, whereby my parachute tangled with somebody else. So somebody else flew his chute over mine, uh, dropped because of the low pressure zone above chute. That dropped is super into dangerous. It. His feet came through. I looked up, saw his feet about 150 foot above the ground. 
thought this chute can't carry two, so I pulled down the one side of my chute to get, get him off. Uh, instead of sliding off, he slid through the chute, so the two chutes just collapsed into one another. Uh, and he was hanging about as far away as you are, yeah. screaming, mother, mother, not again. I won't tell you what I said back. <laughs> um, uh, and we just head toward, uh, fell towards the ground. And I was lucky. Uh, I walked away from it. Um, he broke, he shortened his leg, broke all his leg bones and broke his back. And uh, was, was in a body cast for six months. Anyway, the point about the story is not that. As we came back into the, into the barracks, on the little black and white tube television that they used to have in those days, about this big, you know, deep, um, there was a picture of Soviet T-62s invading Prague, mm. August 1968. I thought, I, I thought, expletive deleted, I'm only going to live three months. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, the, that was the backdrop there. And we, and we did lots of other things, but those I can't talk about, but that bit's public domain. So, mm. you know. Francis, before you jump in, yeah. David, you mentioned a whole bunch of things that I want to dig into first. Yeah. But here you are, you're growing up, son of a single mother, yeah. in a pretty, I mean, you say, you know, it was pretty common, but you're not, you're not living in the lap of luxury. No. And you, you become conservative. Hmm. How did that happen? Well, I wasn't initially, because my grandfather was a communist. In fact, my grandfather had been in prison uh, on a couple of occasions hmm. um, for supposedly leading a riot, actually leading a demonstration. In those days, they didn't distinguish much. <laughs> um, that's how Liberty, the organisation, came to be formed. Nationally, it was the National Council of Civil Liberties because of the treatment of demonstrators by the police. Hmm. And so I grew up in a Marxist background, and I thought of myself as very left-wing um, until I went to university. And a series of different things came together. Uh, you know, for example, when we had a mock election at my school, I stood as a communist candidate, you know, um, <laughs> got one vote. <laughs> it wasn't mine. <laughs> um, but just the, take power anyway, David. Yeah, that's right. Just take it, take it by other methods. But the, uh, anyway, the, uh, so very left of centre. Um, I was um, left of centre liberal, not left of centre Marxist, really. Mm. So, for example, I was in favour of, homosexual law reform, censorship. I've always said, when people say to me, who was the greatest Home Secretary uh, of your lifetime? I say, Roy Jenkins, which surprises conservatives because, you know, he introduced censorship reform, uh, abolished the death penalty, uh, homosexual law reform. All those things came in under, under that government and I was entirely on side with those. And I still am. Um, the... Um, uh, I have slightly nuanced views on death penalty, but not important ones. Um, the, uh, and, but then I went, I went out to work to earn a living. I uh, was in the army, and so I had to look quite hard at what the Soviet threat really was in a way that other people didn't. I mean, we had all the classified briefings and looking at what their, what their war plans were and so on. Um, and I went to university during 1968, mm-hmm. which was... Uh, well, it's an extraordinarily pivotal year in all sorts of ways, social ways, modern ways, in terms of modern society. And all of that led me quite quickly, within a course of about 12 months, to come to a, a view which is really that the most important thing uh, in, a, in a good society, in a civilised society, are individual freedoms, uh, rights under the law, um, robust democratic systems, by which I mean ones that don't collapse 
and I'm going to annoy your American audience again in the way that the American one has sort of got bent out of shape by, by Obama, Trump, Biden, and so on. Um, uh, all those things became very important to me. And it seemed to me the best institutional representation of that was the Conservative Party, right? Didn't mean I agreed with everything they did or believed in. In fact, I actually signed up my entire student, um, Federation of Conservative Students, to Amnesty International, which, of course, there was some <laughs> heartburn. Um, because, you know, at the, at the same time as believing in a capitalist economy, which is the best way to deliver things I've talked about, and, a, and a, an economy where the rule of law is predominant, again, the best way. I also believed in things like not torturing people, not imprisoning people without things that have actually lasted through my life, really. Um, so that's really where it came from. It was, it was the first time, frankly, I thought properly about it rather than just inherited views. You see, because my grandfather was a communist and my stepfather was uh, an ex-communist, Labour voter, uh, we had row after row after row. He was a shop steward. And so we'd argue all the time about uh, trade union. Uh, although I'm very pro-union, uh, we argue all the time. So, so up until, up until as it were, I acquired my independence, I didn't really exercise my brain. Once I did, it was a very quick decision, and what within it, a year. And what does it mean to you to be a conservative? Well, it means the single, well, I've already characterised it, but the, the, the single most important things relate to freedom, mm. right? Um, uh, an assumption the state doesn't know best, all right? Uh, and this, this has resurfaced in the last decade or two, post all the counterterrorism stuff, and now the, the woke stuff, where somehow there's a view that, that, that the collective approach to things is more important than the individual. And that's almost invariably wrong. You know, and, and, and the trouble is, it's also written into the mindsets of even some of our more talented uh, conservative politicians. I mean, you, you, let me give you an example. Uh, again, I'll annoy somebody else. I'm going to annoy lots of people. <laughs> Excellent. Um, <laughs> the views are going to be through the roof. Michael Gove, clever man. I was his referee and so on and all that. But he, you know, he talks about um, Florence. When we're talking about what Britain's going to be like post-Brexit, he talks about Florence and how, and how he attributes to the Medici's all the successes of Florence had bugger all to do with the Medici. It was all to do with the chaos of Florence. Florence, Florence is a city full of alchemists and, and weird, weird religious sects and so on. Um, and because it allowed the freedom of all that chaos uh, and bad ideas, out of a thousand bad ideas, a half a dozen really good ones and uh, a half a dozen geniuses, you know, the Michelangelo's and so on, emerged. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, I think human nature is such, and well-designed institutions are such that if you allow a lot more freedom than you're quite comfortable with, you get a really good outcome, because eventually the best the best emerges. It's a sort of intrinsic meritocracy of chaotic societies. I how's, how's that for a new theory? <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree with you, David. And I think that freedom is one of the things that I value most highly. Yeah. Do you think that this Conservative Party values freedom? No, no, not, not enough. Um, uh, one, one, of the, one of the difficulties with freedom, when, when states, particularly in a, in a sort of democratic state like ours, um, uh, address a, a new threat, I'll use the word mildly, uh, invariably that impinges on freedom, all right? Uh, and all the and all the, the the sort of 
the disciples of freedom, the intellectual disciples of freedom, privacy and things like that, right? So let me give you an example. Um, early, during the Blair years, um, Blair was absolutely obsessed with the idea of identity cards. He's just come up with it again last week, you notice, uh, him and, him yes, and, him and Haig. Um, um, and at the time, because this was being presented as a way of protecting people, you know, we can find terrorists more easily. Oh, I don't know. You think they write terrorists down as their, their occupation? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. um, but they, they had this idea, right? Of, mm -hmm. uh, and 80% and of the public agreed with it. 80%. Oh, I've forgotten the, that part of it. What the polling said, oh. right? And I was the Shadow Home Secretary at the time, and I'd love to be able to tell you, well, you know, my persuasive powers switched from Nah. What actually changed the public's mind was that the state lost two CDs, tax records of 26 million people. All the home addresses, the bank accounts, and they just disappeared, you know, the two CDs. And within a month, it was 70% against rather than 80% in favour because people saw the, 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 the dangers of, of centralised data on people. And this, this resurrects every time. I mean, uh, Whitehall, just down the road from here, uh, believes in something called identity management. I don't want Whitehall managing my identity. I own my identity. If I'm going to have an, identi uh, an identifier, I want it under my control. I want it my solicitor or my lawyer or my bank or whatever. I don't want the state controlling my identity. But they think, it's a great, they think it's the answer to everything. Of course, when you give them the data, they mess it up anyway. They get it wrong. They lose it. They attribute it to the wrong people. But, um, but it's, you know, it's a, it, I think you know, identity cards are quite a good demonstrator of what looks like a very sensible, you know, plausible, managerial idea. Actually, when you do it, the state makes a real unholy mess of it. David, can you explain something to me? I, I'm not from this country. I was born in the Soviet Union. And when I came here in, in the mid-90s, I was like, oh, this is a country that believes in freedom. Yeah. Right? That's what I thought. Yeah. And I cannot tell you how shocked I was in the last few years, particularly with COVID. Now, I remember the ID card debate. I remember opposing it at the time. Didn't remember 80% of people supported it, which is kind of relevant to my question because, look, in a crisis when there's danger and fear, of course the government is going to use that as an opportunity to seize more power, to accumulate more data, to do all that. That's understandable. We've seen it all around the world. But the polling from people that we saw, you know, 20% of people want nightclubs closed down irrespective of COVID, <laughs> you know, all of this stuff. I was going, what, 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 what the hell's going on here, right? Now, what I'm hearing out of you is people perhaps are less well-informed, people are terrified, and they were terrified by the government, by the media, and so on. But, I mean... What happened during COVID? Well, look, I mean, t t two things uh, uh, to, to get straight first. I mean, number one is most of the time, most people don't think about politics, right? I mean, uh, it, it, was, it was true. Because they're sane. Because yeah. <laughs> they're sane. Yeah. You know, yeah. They delegate it to people like me, mm. right? And, um, and it's my job to have these fights on their behalf. Mm -hmm. And they don't think about it very much. So, um, uh, so, so that, that, that's the first thing to understand. Um, second thing is, when they do first think about it, not the eventual conclusion, but when they do first think about it, the first template, the first test, quite properly, is how will it affect me or my family or whatever. And if, if I'm frightened that my granny or my mum uh, or me <laughs> will, will catch COVID, you know, uh, and they're in a risk category, then I'll forget everything else. I say, yeah, right, okay, 
do what's necessary, lock him up, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's perfectly natural. You know, that's, mm. That is, you know, as human beings, we're built to defend our families. You know, we're, mm-hmm. Hundreds of thousands of years of, of, of uh, evolution have of, of, of programmed us that way. But then people think, they start to think about it in carefully, and then they balance things up, you know. And there's that sequence. First, not paying any attention. Then the first attention, what's my own? There's a sort of hierarchy of needs type argument, and then as a more thoughtful thing. I mean, you saw this. I mean, I, in 2008, I had a by-election because, because, um, because we'd lost the vote in the Commons over 42 days' detention without charge. And because I didn't believe that, that, that when it came down to it, when the, when the government brought it back, as they would just before an election, that David Cameron would resist it. I didn't want to be the Home Secretary who's going to impose that. Um, uh, so I forced a by-election. Now, again, at the time, 70% of people thought 40 today's detention without charge was uh, for terrorism suspects was a good idea. Indeed, some people said, what's wrong with 42 years? You know, um, But... They heard the terrorism, they didn't hear the suspects, right? Uh, and uh, it was in the aftermath of the seven, seven bombings and all that. So you can understand people, you know, they, they, they imagine this terrible event. Uh, uh, we should do everything possible. Of course, later on, they start thinking through the details. Who are the people that actually get held for six weeks, what it is, uh, without charge? Well, it's people against whom you have no evidence. It's the people who live in the same house as the person who did it, not the person themselves. People who themselves, get they get charged in five or six days. So what happened over the course of, I don't know, about five weeks of a, of a local localised uh, by-election uh, was that people started to think about it. And again, it went that one went from 70-30 one way to 70-30 the other way over the course because I made people think terrorist suspects. Right. So again, it's just that people they ration their time, they ration their thought process, they ration the effort, the interest they they waste on things. You know, they want to raise their children, they want to do their job, they want to save for their pension, whatever. They don't want to spend their time thinking about things that the state should do properly first time. But David, is that what happened during COVID? Because I don't remember it like that. Well, it at hasn't. All. No, it hasn't. It co- seemed to me that the level of authoritarianism, both in the government and the public, increased. Over has time. gone, and it and it hasn't yet reversed. You no, see, no. And I th- and, it, and and I think that process is a slower process going on at the moment. Um, and part of the problem is the sort of public censorship that's going on. Mm. You know, it was very difficult to get a proper hearing. I mean, in the Conservative Party, for example, I wasn't a member of it, but the thing called the Coronavirus Research Group, I think it was. I mean, one, its, its chairman is now a cabinet member. Um, so, you know, there, there, there is at least some um, thought process there. But I think what's going to happen is slowly, over time, the weaknesses in the state argument will become apparent. You're seeing it today. You're seeing it with, uh, the, while, as we sit here, the, the front page of the Daily Telegraph is, is a story taken from Matt Hancock's WhatsApp exchanges, uh, suggesting that he was, wasn't actually going from science at all. He was going from other, whatever, other convenient, politically convenient reasons he, he had for making those decisions. We'll see the, uh, the outcome of that. But, uh, What's happening? Time we saw, we saw somewhere else. We saw. Um, you may remember early on, uh, some of us said this looks like a virus that's come from a laboratory, and God, did you get 
pilloried for saying that online. In banned, the, not just pilloried, yeah, banned. And banned. You, you get banned off uh, places and, like And Twitter. indeed, a Nobel Prize winner, that was the first point, by the way, in this mm. whole process where I, saw, where I saw a French Nobel Prize winner mm. effectively banned from talking about his expert subjects, <laughs> you know. And I thought, you know, this is wrong. Mm. We need to deal with misinformation at the source. Nobel Prize winners. Well, your old country knew how to deal with yeah, misinformation quite. at the source, so, yeah. which they did for seventy years. Yes, exactly. But the um, so so the uh, th- that's beginning to break up. That's beginning to come mm-hmm. apart. And um, and one of the one of the things I am going to be focusing on in the next year or two is trying to make sure that the inquiry. Is um, uh, is actually looks at all the facts and takes mm-hmm. them all on board. And why is that important? Why does that matter? Well, it matters because there is a unique characteristic to this, and the unique characteristic, which I've never seen before in my lifetime, anyway, is that uh, every single ruling establishment in the world, possibly excepting Sweden, made the same mistake. And ruling establishments are very bad at admitting mistakes. And when they're defending each other, you know, you've got the World Health Organization, you've got, you've got um, uh, Ameri- the American government, the British government, all of these, all, you know, all the European governments, they all essentially made the same mistakes. And so it's going to be quite hard to tease it apart. But I think it's going to be one of the big jobs in the next couple of years, two or three years, to, to, to get it right. Because, but partly protect freedoms from unnecessary incursions, but also partly to make sure the next time we have a pandemic, we respond in a way which actually deals with it rather than sort of behaves in a sort of politically defensive way, which is really what we're looking at, the political defensiveness by every establishment in the world. Um, so, you know, it's it, it, the last time something like this happened probably was when the Catholic Church was the dominant force in the sort of, I don't know, the 10th century onwards sort of mm. thing, um, you know, when you only have one, one allowed mindset. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's 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 going to be um, a the next five years, not the next year, the next five years. I think it's going to be a long, long battle to get the facts straight. And are you going to be covering misappropriation of funds as well when it comes to PPE? And oh yeah, I mean, look, I I used to be um, we skim past all sorts of things, but I used to be the public accounts committee chairman, um, and uh, I take the view that proper operation of the state uh, in terms of looking after people's money is one of the first responsibilities. You know, it's the first duty of the state not to, not to take your money and waste it or throw it away or, worse, worst of all, hand it over in a corrupt process to, to your favourite supporters, whatever it might be. Um, and if that's what's happened, I'm not, I'm not going to prejudge these things, but if that's what's happened, then the judicial system should come down on it like a ton of bricks. Absolutely. David, uh, a real criticism that people have of the Conservative Party, and I think is a very valid one, is that the Conservative Party isn't conservative. It no longer represents conservative people. It got elected to implement Brexit, which they've done. But you look at what the some of the policies that they've brought in, and I'm not a conservative, but I'm looking at that going, that is almost more centre-left or left than it is conservative. Well, first thing to say about the Conservative Party is it's it's pretty bloody difficult to define what conservative means, right? Mm. If you if you if you looked at my philosophy, and this hasn't changed since I entered Parliament, uh, you could probably more accurately describe me as a Gladstonian liberal. 
you know, uh, low taxes, free trade, uh, free movement, rule of law, all the things we've talked about already. Um, and the Conservative Party is a, um, an alliance. It's, it's not a single entity, you know. It's always had. A, a range of a, a, a range a spectrum okay let me put it in a more specific way yeah people if i'm a red wall voter mm. i don't think i voted to have for example this is just one example picked out at random mm. i don't think i voted to have forty thousand people come into this country illegally in small boats mm. i don't think i voted and look I, i'm allowed to say this as an immigrant myself i don't think i when when i when you told me tens of thousands i don't think i voted for hundreds of thousands mm. right so irrespective of whether that's a conservative policy or not, I think France's point is it's not a government that's deliver, delivering on its commitments. Not yet. No, it isn't. I mean, the, I mean part of the problem, I mean, we're, we're talking at a difficult time mm. in terms of answering this question because you've had, obviously, Brexit. You've had, more importantly, in many ways, COVID. Mm -hmm. You've got Ukraine. You've got the fracturing of the world trading system, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is, in, in many ways, maybe the most important thing yes, in the yes. of all this, right? Um, all these really, really important structures have been buggered up. Am I allowed to say that one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we swear all the time yeah. on this, so say um, whatever you want. And, 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 of course, we've had, what, three changes of leader, really, I mean, since, since Cameron, I mean, uh, through, through all this. And so uh, in terms of political distraction, it's been quite uh, the normal focus, you know, the, the, as I say, the low taxes, control of our borders, uh, all, all those standard Tory, actually standard good management things really, um, have, have, have slipped, no doubt about it. Well, that's a very gentle word to use to describe <laughs> what's happened there. I'm a kind, I'm yeah. a kind Come person. On. We've got we, the corporation taxes, every tax that I can see is going up, uh -huh. right? No control of our borders whatsoever. Like, on, I, I think it's, I, I think, look, this isn't an attempt to attack you or the Conservative Party. I mean, as Francis says, neither of us is conservative, but mm. it's not good. Like, no. it's not, and it's not delivering for the people who voted for the Conservative Party. Well, one of, one, of the, one of the difficulties is that, um, and this, this, is, this applies to all parties, not just mm. the Conservative Party, is a, a, a general political, is that there is a tendency in this day and age, uh, and, it, and it really mostly started, not uniquely, but mostly started under Blair and has got worse ever since, is there's a tendency to replace actual answers with populist answers. Mm -hmm. So let me give you an example on migration. Okay. Um, I have opposed the Rwanda policy, mm -hmm. um, partly because I think it's sort of uncivilized, but also partly because I don't think it'll work, right? Yeah. But if you go out in the, if you went out in the street, and you stopped 100 people, 80 would think it's a great idea, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why, in my view, it's, it's the policy. And we've seen this, as I say, since Blair. Blair used to talk in, in, a, in big terms, you know, about cracking down on migration on, you know, and all the various anti-crime things. Crime got worse under Blair, but, but yeah, you know, we had all sorts of um, uh, things he was talking about, and, and, on, and on terrorism, of course, as well. And the trouble is that people... Hear the policy. If it sounds tough, great. That's wonderful. Truth is, what we need to do on something like um, the, the the boats cross the channel is some of it's down to uh, some really simple, sensible things. I wrote to the prime minister before Christmas. You wouldn't necessarily remember um, with initially fifty other MPs on, on the letter, but it turned out to be a hundred after I got a bit of coverage. Um, saying, look, just. 
define Albania as a safe country, because it is. Albania's had fewer references to the European Court in the last 10 years than we have. <laughs> <laughs> we should all be fleeing to Albania. Oh, exactly. I have, a better, I have a better case to go to Tirana than they do to yeah. come here, right? Um, and uh, let's first do that. It doesn't solve the problem, but, but golly, it knocks about 15,000 or 12,000 people out of it yeah. straight away. You know, It's a third of the, uh, of the overall total. Um, let's do that. Get that under control. Um, uh, I've also said, not in the letter, but I've said to the, the various people involved in this, you know, you've got to improve the, the cross-channel surveillance. You know, a British company provides Frontex, which is the European um, uh, border agency, with the surveillance for the, uh, for the Mediterranean. Light aircraft, twin-engine light aircraft, a DA-62 for your, for your techie uh, viewers. Uh, complete with, uh, with synthetic aperture radar, with infrared, with long-range cameras, with um, uh, devices that detect um, uh, mobile phones. Uh, and and you know, the combination of all of them, they can spot people arriving at the beach in Libya. So they can spot people arriving at the beach in Libya uh, from international airspace. They can spot people arriving at the beach in France from British airspace. The French tell us they can't do it because of privacy concerns. Well, I'm a privacy enthusiast. And I don't see that, but never mind, that's their view. Uh, but we could do that, and we, could, we should have been telling them every time somebody, they're, they're there. Every single one. So we why don't we? I think, it's a, I, think it's a comp I think it's a government competence thing. I think the Home Office throughout, really since, remember I made my reference to um, Roy Jenkins, really since those days, I don't think the Home Office has been functional. And there have been desperate attempts to make it work. Prisons have been taken out, and justice has been taken out, and and they still quite haven't got the, the department properly functional. I think there is, a, there is a serious problem of competence in Whitehall generally, decline of competence over the last 20, 30 years. Um, but, I can see uh, why you're not a minister anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, I, mean I, I, had, I had this conversation once. I probably shouldn't tell you with whom, but let's say somebody who was at the top of the Whitehall regime uh, and I said, you served in the, um, the Lawson Treasury, you know. Mm -hmm. Tell me, are, is today's Whitehall as competent as it was in Thatcher's time? And he, and he thought for a second, he said, no. I said, why not? He said, well, in the Treasury case, you know, you've got the, the, the very clever youngsters who used to go to, to become Treasury policy principals, you know, uh, and now making a million a year in the city, you know, post Big Bang. Um, Post uh, Blair, Blair, Blair gave a lot of extra power to special advisors, the, the Alistair Campbells of the world, and so on. Which, of course, he took that power away from the policy advisors in the Foreign Office and in, and in the Cabinet Office, and so on. So, what happened was that uh, we uh, we basically aren't doing as good a job. We also rotate people too often, and lots and lots of tiny techie things. Like, like Blair made it the case it used to be. In order to become Permanent Secretary, you had to serve in a minister's private office. Now, serving in a minister's private office is a nightmare. You know, you're working seven days a week, you know, for long hours. The minister can call you up at midnight and, and all that, and I used to. <laughs> and say, oh, let's just come on the news. What's going on? Sort of yeah. thing, you know. Um, and, but, but, you know, if you want to get to the top, that's what you did. Well, you know, think, changes, rules, lots and lots of changes, rules like that, and other ones as well. Has, has reduced the effectiveness of, of Whitehall, I think. And, and we, over COVID, you, know, you, you also saw another decline in the effectiveness. You saw it with, um, 
the, uh, the case officers, the rate that the case officers cleared or dealt with asylum cases, down to 1.4 a week. Well, that's sort of madness, you know. It should be about five times that a day. You know, it should be four or five a day. Um, and, uh, and those sorts of things, you know, you've got, a real, you've got real serious competence issues, I think, given the size of the problems. And that, so I, I'm sorry, it's a long when you'd answered your question, why are we not doing the surveillance? And I think that's part of the reason. Um, we also got, we've also got young, you've got young politicians too. You know, before I came into the house, I'd been working in business. I was the main board director of a FTSE 100 company before I became an MP. Um, uh, and that's not that common anymore. So it's, there's some, it's, it's true for some, but most people, most is probably putting it too strongly, but a, fit, a very large proportion of MPs coming in now are expads. They've done nothing but work in Whitehall and so on. And actually, you know, if you're representing people, you want to have done something in the outside world, not just something in government. You know, I think it. I think it's really, really important that, uh, and that's that's declined. It's no, it's no individual's fault. It's a it's a social trend that's happened. David, you spoke in an interview about how there's only been two transformational prime ministers, one of which was Margaret Thatcher. Mm. And I look at the current political cohort that we have, and it seems that they lack one fundamental quality necessary to be an, a, a good leader. And that is the willingness to be unpopular and to be hated. And I look at all our leaders and they don't seem to want to be disliked. They don't seem to want to annoy people which if you want to transform things, if you want to make things better, you've got to make unpleasant and difficult and unpopular decisions. Well, let's be clear about one thing. Margaret didn't want, want <laughs> She had to get used to it. Yeah, all right, okay. But she was prepared to, But right? she was prepared. Yeah, the lady's not for turning. But when I first knew her, yes. you know, she, had, she was uh, Margaret Thatcher milk snatcher. Yeah. yeah, you're too, both of you too young to, yeah. to remember yeah. the scandal. But she, uh, scandal. Uh, she she had cancelled free school milk yeah. for uh, for certain categories of youngsters, and um, and she got used to it. But the thing you, you have to understand is that Margaret was very calculating. It's probably the right word about that. Um, she, when she took on a big problem, let us say she took on the issue of overmighty unions or took on the issue of the, uh, of the miners' strike or whatever, right? She would take this big strategic aim. She'd set out the big strategic aim, but then she'd salami slice it into small pieces and do it one piece at a time, ideally only one enemy at a time, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. not a thousand enemies. Well, you see, in 1974, Ted Heath lost the election because he basically made an enemy of about 300 different groups. Mm over industrial relations, and then got thrown out by, by the unions, really. Um, she would cut it into little bits. Um, so to give you an example, uh, with the miners' strike, um, number one, when Derek Ezra tried to precipitate it before she was ready, she sacked him. You know, she didn't sack anybody else. She sacked the head of the coal board. Um, during it, she, she won that conflict, um, albeit at great social cost, but... Um, uh, during it, she was scared by the dockers coming out on a wildcat strike, which she had not prepared for. And so ever, ever thereafter, until I changed her mind, she avoided pick, having a conflict with the dockers. You know? And then I said, we've got to reform the scheme, the dock labour scheme. And so we did it. But, but it took a long time because she was very, very careful. She was, 
she was much more a woman than a man on this. I think women are much better sometimes at dealing objectively with risk than we are. We're sort of sometimes brought up to sort of rush headfirst into risks. Not clever in politics. She understood what needed to be done and she did it. And notably, she always did the unpopular things in the first year or two. So sort of unfair to apply this to Sunak because he hasn't got spare time to do this. But generally speaking, I think um, uh, you're right that the that people, modern politicians haven't got in the habit of thinking through, right, okay, what am I going to do in year one, year two, year three? Because by year four, she always had the results to show. Mm. You see, and she always went to year four, you know, and in a very calculated way. Um, uh, you know, uh, this was, so this wasn't sort of, you know, the political equivalent of winning a Victoria Cross. You know, Margaret was about winning the battle. And all right, there was some pain to take early on, but she knew, she calculated it out. And, and I think people, very few people in, in, in the House of Commons have a real memory of Margaret. All right. Um, so, for example, when Liz Truss was presenting herself as a modern Margaret, nothing like it. Margaret would never have done what Liz and Quasi did with that budget, you know, frankly, in my view, a mad budget, um, because, you know, it lost the markets, it lost everything. She would, have, she would have done that calculation properly. She would have got Lawson or Howe or whoever, whoever was the chance of to sit down and work out what you could do and what would maximise uh, the, the effects and so on and, and minimise the risks. So, yeah, um, she was willing to, to be unpopular. It, really, really, um, that, gen that post-war generation was much more tough-minded, I think, in many ways, no matter what the polit, you know, Tory or Labour, or Liberal for that matter, um, less Liberal because they weren't really in play, but Tory or Labour were willing sometimes to stand up. I mean, Barbara Castle, if you read your history books, Barbara Castle and the Place of Strife trying to sort out the trade unions. Harry Wilson ran away from it, but they at least started down the road. So that's, a that's some, to some extent a generational thing, you know. When I came into the House of Commons, my two predecessors, the ones, the members for Howden and Halton Price, were the last two double-decorated members of the House. They both had a military cross and a distinguished service order. And that's always preyed on my mind. You know, <laughs> these are people who, you know, were patriotic in the sense of you know, putting themselves in harm's way for their country, but also looked after their regiment in North Africa for two or three years so that, well, I've got to deal with a constituency issue of somebody's planning problem or somebody's uh, can't, can't make ends meet or whatever. You know, they've got Jimmy whose wife has left him. They've got Johnny who can't pay his debts. They've got Frankie who's a, an alcoholic and so on. And they, they have to deal with all that. So they, they, from the beginning, had a far closer grasp, I think, of ordinary people's concerns than subsequent generations have had. Uh, I was going to say, but this is a very real problem, David, because if you don't understand the concerns or the lives of ordinary people mm. with the best will in the world, how are you then going to enact policies that are going to help these oh, people? Well, I agree. I agree. And I, and, but I think it's a systemic problem. Now, against that, you've got um, a, a circumstance where the caseload of MPs is much bigger than it used mm. to be. So the, 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 the counter-argument to me would be, well, that brings them closer to... Uh, to, to the people, but I, but I think I just think that British society has become more stratified, uh, got more layers in it now than actually it had when I was growing up. I think uh, I mean nobody wants to wish a war on a country, um, but the 
the one of the effects of the second, well, actually one of the effects of the 1930s and the 1940s together was to make us feel more of a nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, didn't always help the Tories. I mean, after we, we got wiped out in 1945, you know, um, but I think there was, and indeed the Tories had more working class votes in those days as well, even than now. Um, uh, but, it, you know, it, it, uh, that, that sense of nationhood was very important. Nationhood, society, call it what you want. It's a, it's a commonality. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that, we, we've lost a bit of that. And I think, I think, although we all know what everybody's thinking because of social media these days, it's an incredibly fragmented um, society it reflects. You know, you, you, you look at strands of social media and it, 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 it's so intolerant of, of other viewpoints that instead of having um, a debate where if you sort of did a, a distribution diagram of people's opinions along a spectrum, it would tend to be that shape, you know, be a normal distribution. Sometimes it was like a dromedary, you know, two humps, you know, slightly different. Um, but there was always something in the middle. I sometimes these days, I'm talking about, I don't know, Brexit or COVID or, uh, or woke issues or whatever. I sometimes feel it's just two competing echo chambers. Mm-hmm. And there's nowhere in the middle. In fact, if you stand in the middle, you get shot at by everybody. That's right. Yep. Well, that's what we do. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. But, uh, David, I want to move on from the party politics. But first, I want to ask you a final question on that. Is your party going to lose the next election? No, not necessarily. I think, um, I think if you'd asked me that um, six months ago, mm-hmm. I would have said we had a one in ten chance at best, if not zero. Mm-hmm. I think it's improved to one in five. Uh, I mean, literally, that is twenty percent. That's twenty percent from ten percent. From ten percent, so that's doubled in a week. (laughs) That is the politicians' answer. I haven't finished yet (laughs) because we've got we've got a budget coming up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, And I think what the budget does is very important. The issue you've been talking about um, of of uh, borders, you know. I think there are some solutions available. I've talked about the Albanian issue uh, and the more practical issue of how we deal with it. Um, I think there's quite a lot going on there. I've been, I've been, I've been talking a lot to Number Ten about those things. You know, I used to be shadow Home Secretary for five years. I mean, I used to be a specialist in removing Home Secretaries uh, when they were Labour ones. <laughs> um, um, so you know, you can imagine I have views on that. And I think those three issues could move it the other way. I mean, that's the thing. Um, so. Uh, you know, I've been around in politics long enough to see much, much worse circumstances were than we're in now, and I think the really, yeah, oh yeah. I mean, bear in mind, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was an MP in 1997. You know, when we had a hundred and whatever it was, Fortnum. That was worse for the Conservative Party. I don't think the country was in a worse state than, than it is now. No, the no, 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 no. We the country facing. was in a good state. I mean, yeah, that's the, what the, I mean. The, the, the amazing irony there yeah. was that we delivered a fantastic economy and we got zero credit for mm-hmm. it. So no, 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 no. Oh, no, there's no doubt that the countries, but all countries in a difficult state. Yes. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean what, what, what's, I said to you before, I'm a sort of Gladstonian liberal in my, in my intrinsic politics. The, um, in my view, the greatest positive thing that's happened in the history of the world in the last century happened in 1995. And what happened then was the World Trade Organization uh, and the gap round had a dramatic reduction of extra, uh, uh, tariff barriers around the world. 
And what that did was it led to about one and a half billion people, billion, 1,500 million people uh, coming out of absolute poverty. So in my view, probably the greatest event in modern times. Um, and if we're not careful, that trade liberalization could go into reverse. Ukraine, China, Taiwan, the, the Chinese state capitalist behavior, Huawei and all those other issues. Um, so you've got that, that, that's huge. You've got uh, other knock-on effects, obviously Ukraine, um, uh, the, what is in effect the attempt to create the old, recreate the old Soviet Union um, uh, is going to be agonizing one way or another, the outcome, either, either for the West or, the, or for Russia um, uh, at some point. Uh, you've, you know, you've got post-Brexit. I think that's all of a sudden. That's a rather different colour. That looks much warmer than it did before. Um, you've got a United States that's sort of indecisive uh, in where it is in the world at the moment. I mean, um, I didn't like Trump. Don't get me wrong. I dislike Trump intensely. I think he's a very bad influence. But I'm, I'm not sure that Biden's uh, a great leader either um, for all sorts of reasons. So, so, you know, of, of course we've got a huge number of problems, but they're not just British problems, they are worldwide problems. Well, let's, let's talk about one of them, which is the war in Ukraine. And uh, one of the things that we saw during COVID particularly is uh, the breakdown of trust in what we were being told that had been going on for some time. I think it probably really kicked off in 2015, 2016 and the way that it is going now. We've got to a point now where there's a lot of people, particularly people who are sort of anti-work or maybe lean right, who who quite understandably, I think, really distrust what anyone is telling them from the mainstream media, politicians, etc. Yeah. And we've got to a point with Ukraine where I'm sort of tearing what's left of my hair out in the sense that there are quite a lot of people who've devo- de- sort of delved into all sorts of conspiracy theories. In fact, we had a debate with Peter Hitchens uh, only a oh, few yeah. days ago in here talking. And there are people who think this is all NATO's fault and, and all of this. I actually disagree with you about the attempt to recreate the Soviet Union. Putin wants to recreate the Russian Empire. That's why he hates (laughs) Lenin so much, because he gave away parts of the the Soviet Union, of what the Russian Empire to create the Soviet Union. But from SW1, they look quite similar. Yes, (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, the Russian Empire was bigger. I know. You've got to remember. Um, But in any case, uh, we talked about Thatcher as well. How do you think she would have handled this for a start? Very clinically. You mean the Ukraine yes. episode? Very clinically, probably in a quite similar way to, um, to what's been done, i.e. the supply of arms rather than uh, direct intervention. Um, she might have been a bit more aggressive in the first part. She, would, she, wouldn't have, she wouldn't have allowed direct engagement, but she might have done something like, I don't know, um, provide a, a no-fly zone for the west of Ukraine, something like that. I mean, designed to stay out of entanglement, but to provide some sort of safe spaces. She might have done that, but broadly speaking, she would have done something similar to what we're doing now. She would probably have taken a more active um, international role, um, push push around than 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 uh, any British current British Prime Minister really able to do. Um, uh, because bear in mind, the structures in her day were, were far more entrenched in place. I mean, I remember vividly uh, sitting in the tea room, not in the tea room, in the, in, the, in the dining room of the House of Commons, and she came in and sat next to me. And I said, and it was at the time of the Reykjavik talks, 
Um, and um, I said, what have you been doing, Margaret? She said, I've been straightening out Ronnie. <laughs> 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 and we forget, of course, that that duumvirate was very important. You know, it, it had some friction from time to time over Grenada and other things, but, but that duumvirate was very important, and there's no real equivalent duumvirate around today. Mm -hmm. um, so, but she would have been very, and she, there would have been an incredibly clinical exercise in how far can we go. Remember what I said before about controlling risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the strategic aim? Her strategic aim would have been, I'm quite sure, complete expulsion uh, of Russia from Ukraine. She might have, she might have uh, had a different view about Crimea because Crimea's got different histories, you know. But the, but the. Um, but she, broadly speaking, I think she would have gone through. She would have had from the beginning the idea of a complete expulsion. But she would have sliced it into into very very small pieces, and then each bit managed very carefully. And she would have and she would have taken close. She would have paid close attention herself. She would have she would have appointed somebody like Ben Wallace, who she trusted as as um, as uh, as MOD. But it would have been under daily review in number 10. And what would she, and what do you say to the people who say, this is, West interventions are necessary, and in fact, by expanding eastwards, NATO has caused this. Uh, we are leading to World War Three and the potential for nuclear engagement between the world's two superpowers. Why don't we just let Russia have influence over what it has? It's, it's Russia, Ukraine is Russia's sphere of influence. Putin's talked about how it's it's just Russian land that's temporarily called Ukraine. You know, what do you say to all those people? Well, I say the first first of them, you know, go back to to my original principles: the right of self determination is individual self determination and state self determination. You know, um, and at the end of the day, what does Ukraine want to do? You know, uh, the nation of Ukraine. Uh, that's the first thing. Um, second thing is, uh, I I don't. Pay a lot of attention to the conspiracy theories and so on. Um, why? Some of them might have some substance of truth. I don't know. Um, I'm not in a position to know to have a detailed intelligence brief on what what EU's activities in you know, pre-maiden and so on uh, were in in uh, Ukraine. But wars are horrible, rough-edged things. You know the things we did in the Second World War. Well, you know, there were some nasty things we did, you mm -hmm. know, uh, don't get talked about because we won, you know. <laughs> Quite. Uh, huh? Quite. Uh, you know, and, that, and uh, so I'm afraid, you know, once you're at war, you've got to recognise that this is, I mean, there are still rules, um, but, you know, there's going to be lots of stories flying around and you won't know the truth for years and years and years. So we have to decide, you know, we are supporting one side, that's what we should do. I don't suppose that side is perfect. I don't suppose, I don't suppose pre-invasion that, that the Ukrainian state was a perfect state any more than, well, less than we are, you mm. know. Um, but it doesn't matter, you know. There, there, there is a big symbolic thing here and it doesn't just affect Ukraine because if we had stood back and let, let Ukraine fall, what would happen to Taiwan? Yeah? Um, what would happen elsewhere with the next time? I mean, bear in mind, this is what, number seven in Putin's uh, excursions, you know, you've got uh, South Ossetia and uh, Abkhazia and all these other, all, all these other, and all carefully calculated. I mean, well, you know, we should be, and, and Syria, you know, I'm one of the few MPs here who's been to Damascus since the Syrian war. I went and I saw Assad um, and spoke to him, you know, uh, about what was going on there. And just as an aside for you, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, I, I said to him, what's going on? Because Russia's supposed to be pulling out. 
But when I crossed the border coming across the Baikal Valley, there were clearly Russian, what looked like Spetsnaz, um, at the border. Uh, in the hotel I was staying in, in Damascus, there were plainly at least two sets of Russian aircrew. Um, um, I don't speak enough words of Russian to know what they were saying, but I knew it was Russian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and he said, uh, oh, Putin has pulled back because he's been accused of undermining the peace process. But I spoke to him about it, and Putin said to me, we will not let you lose. And astonishingly chilling thing, this is way back when, this is 2016, I think it was. Um, it's an astonishingly chilling thing, but you know, it, you can see the calculation going on, and mostly his calculations have worked in his favour. You know, South Ossetia, why did they pick South Ossetia? South Ossetia, um, uh, part of Georgia, has, has, um, has um, you know, got the highest number of uh, gallantry medal wins per capita in, in, in the old Soviet Union. You know, an incredible high level of pro-Russian, pro-Soviet patriotism sort of thing. Uh, they picked it for a reason, you know, picking away. And if he keeps winning, then he'll keep going. And there has to come a point. This is a lesson of the 1930s. It really we didn't is. have nuclear weapons in the 1930s. We didn't have nuclear weapons, say. but you, you can't allow nuclear weapons to then suddenly just give the advantage to the other side. Uh, a lot of people said, oh, early on, there was lots of fear of this. Um, and bear in mind, I grew up with nuclear weapons. Part, as I said, part of my role in, 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 in the reserve forces was that, was related to that. In the event of a nuclear exchange, one of the people who would be highly, greatly at risk would be Putin himself. That's what would happen. Now, is this a man who is a sort of, you know, such a heroic self-image is willing to give up his life? This is a man who spent two years in a bunker avoiding COVID, all right? It's a man who has meetings, who wouldn't have a meeting as close as we're having, yeah. you know, whose security meetings are, you know, in a room as big as this, but with four people in it, you know. Um, the man is, is a man, an aging man with intimations of mortality, you know, so he's not going to rush into a nuclear exchange. You don't be stupid about it. You don't take unnecessary risks, but don't, don't let yourself be frightened by your own weapons. Final question on this, David. Are we in Cold War II? Yeah, we are. We've been in it for a longer time than we think, I think. All that's happened is we haven't recognized it, you know, uh, and we haven't calculated around it. We have, what's happened is the, War on terrorism has elided, through Syria in particular, into a sort of involuntary slippage into, into Cold War. And this Cold War actually includes China too, actually. Um, uh, we have, I mean, we've allowed the, the great benefit I talked about before, the 1995 transformation. Um, we have allowed the real benefits of that to blind us and handicappers in our responses to things like China's treatment of the Uyghurs, uh, China's uh, basically kleptocratic approach to, uh, to, mod to state capitalism. Uh, and we should have been a bit more rigorous about that. But we aren't, you know. I'm afraid that is the nature of Western politics. It is quite, I mean, democracies are quite weak a lot of the time. I mean, this struck me most starkly when uh, after um, after Litvinenko killings, a few years later, David Cameron was taking um, Putin to the judo at the Olympics. What were we doing there? What signal do we think we're giving us? You know, for a trivial diplomatic advantage, we were telegraphing that we'd sort of forgiven them for murdering people in our territory. 
you know, we have to, you know, there are lessons we have to relearn uh, in this world. And Cold War, Cold War two or three, whatever it is, um, is not is not a bad description. I'm afraid we've got to learn uh, to manage relations with not necessarily actively hostile states, but potentially hostile states in such a way that they know there's a price for breaking our rules. David, we're going to move on to a subject very quickly that's even more toxic than the Ukraine war, which is obviously Brexit. Mm. Um, what's going on with Brexit at the moment? Just sum it up for people who aren't au fait with Northern Ireland discussions, the protocol, etc. Well, we, we got to... We got to a, 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 a problematic position after Theresa May, many years ago, when, when I was Brexit Secretary, without talking to me, agreed with the European Union alignment, full alignment between the North and South of Ireland. Right? That created intrinsic problems for us, either a barrier within Britain or we'd all have to follow uh, you know, Brexit become useless because it wouldn't allow us to, to deviate from European standards and so on. And from that, there's been a cascade of problems which have been handled not terribly well necessarily by successive governments. The, we got to a point really where we were heading towards uh, a number of things. One, a barrier in the North Sea, which meant selling goods in, from Great Britain into Northern Ireland and vice versa uh, was, was just as bad as selling them across an international border. Um, and also not uh, make it difficult for the North to deal with the South as well. Um, what's happened in the last week uh, or so, uh, effect effectively the last few months, but it's come to the surface the last week, is that Rishi has found a way, Rishi Sunak, and I think it's him personally, um, has found a way of eradicating most of the problems. Not all of them, uh, but you know, if you are selling goods most goods to and from, not all goods, most goods to and from Northern Ireland, you can do so without a barrier. So we're back to being a single nation. Right? If you're selling them to Northern Ireland to go south, then it does go through a barrier. That's not a big deal. Um, we have got to the point where uh, we've got a block uh, on um, uh, new laws being imposed on Northern Ireland, which uh, two blocks. One, they will only relate to uh, its ability to trade. They're, they're, they've got to have a reference to that point. So quite a lot have been removed. And secondly, if new ones come along, we've got, or at least the Northern Ireland Assembly, 30 out of 90 of them, from more than one party, are able to trigger a veto with the help, with the support of the British government. Now, people say, oh, well, how will this work and so on? I'll tell you how it works. It'll act as a disincentive for the, for the Europeans to pick a fight over it because we, you know, we have the veto. So the, there'll be a lot of talking will go on, which is fine. I've got, nothing, I've got no problem with that. So we've got, at long last, and it's, and it's several years later than it should have happened, and it took so long because we were too soft in the first instance in our negotiating strategies. We didn't do a Thatcher, really. Um, uh, we've at long last got to the point where Brexit's now looking like it's working as it broadly should. I mean, I would have preferred not to have to do the deals in Northern Ireland, but that pass was sold by Theresa May a long time ago, which would led to my resignation. So, so I think we've got a good outcome. And most important of all, not most important of all, but uh, an added benefit, uh, is also we're, we're, we're on a good relationship with the Europeans. You know, and they're our biggest neighbour. 
And that's what we should be aiming for. That, you know, I, you couldn't have it at the beginning because there was bound to be tension at the beginning, the, the resentment, all that. that. That was inevitable. But we're now at a position where we're talking to them. And the reasons for that, part, partly it's, I think, Rishi's skill, but part of it is they suddenly realized that if they kept pressing the way they did, they would destroy the Good Friday Agreement. And the world would not, history would not forgive them. Right? Uh, and secondly, uh, post-Ukraine, they realized that actually we're really still very important to them. You know? And even the people who are most resentful of Brexit, who I think the French, probably realize it most. Because you know, they're a major military power on the continent. So, so I think that uh, the outcome is a good outcome in the final analysis. It's not going to be perfect. I guarantee you the next week there'll be loads of little wrinkles. Like, oh, look, this they didn't tell us about this. Didn't tell us. There's always that in international deals. Uh, it's a pretty good outcome, which is why I, I, I gave it a stronger welcome than I normally give most government actions <laughs> this week. And you don't think the DUP are going to try and scupper it? Well, I think at the end of the day, the DUP um, is... Div- look, it's divided amongst itself, I think. You know, there, there, there's a spectrum of views inside the DUP. Um, and I think there's, there's, a, there's a corollary which has got almost nothing to do with Brexit, which is do they want to go back into government with Sinn Féin? They don't like being in government with Sinn Féin, I don't think. I mean, I'm, this is my surmise. I don't know this. I think history will tell us that. <laughs> <laughs> what? No, like I said, I think history would tell us that. Yeah. Um, and the, 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 for whatever reason, they may not end up supporting this. Um, but, you know, they don't get their powers unless they go back into government. They don't get their veto power unless they go back into government. So I think there's a good incentive to restart the Good Friday Agreement, the, the mechanisms of it. Um, they may abstain. They may even vote against. The truth of the matter is this is going to get carried in the House of Commons by over 400 votes because Labour are going to support it, SNP are going to support it, Liberals will end up supporting it. Um, uh, and it will be seen, broadly speaking, as a success. And you've got people like ranging from... Uh, Steve Baker, uh, Rhys Mogg, me—you know, people who—you know, people who are not late arrivals to Brexit. You know, we've been fighting these battles for a long time, saying this is the right outcome, and I think it is. David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a wonderful conversation. We always finish our interviews with the same question, which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? Science, technology, the the future of the country. The future of the world, but the future of this country in particular, because we are such a big science superpower, is going to be dictated by everything from DNA uh, manipulation, um, modern methods of uh, of healthcare, um, uh, artificial intelligence, you name it, and the level of public discussion of technology today. Is um, is you're too you're, both of you too young? I've got all these old analogies. It's sort of on a level of tomorrow's world. It's sort of pop science, you know. It's a science comic. We don't have enough people in government or in public life generally who are scientists who are who who you know who are happily sit down. So let me give you an example. Uh, during COVID, we treated models the 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 product of models as though they were facts. Remember all those imperial models and all that stuff? You know, uh, in fact, I wrote along with um, uh, Matt Ridley an article in the Telegraph way back at the beginning saying, look, for heaven's sake, stop treating this as a fact. He's, he's got every 
blasted prediction wrong in all the pandemic so far. Why should we think it's true now? So things like that, the use of mathematics, the use of scientific techniques and so on, are very, very poorly understood in public life. Um, it's not so true in places like Singapore and Japan, but in this country, we've got to wake up that science, technology, engineering, mathematics are the future. And it's about time government started understanding it and talking about it properly uh, and the public at large. Uh, I want to, my throwaway last policy for you, I want to do away with university loans for, for STEM subjects. I would like to put science, technology, engineering and maths on a grant basis, a full grant basis for anybody who wants to do it. Why do I want to do it? One, because of the reason I just told you. Two, because I think it would be a way of pulling really clever working class kids into higher education because they'll look at it as risky at the moment uh, and give them proper careers, which is not happening at the moment. So that, you know, it's a very grand, broad subject, and I could, I could sit and talk for hours on it, but that's, that, for me, is the big hole in, in modern politics. David, that's a great point. Uh, of course, uh, you're, you're cancelling all the amazing media studies graduates we've produced <laughs> over the last many decades in that process. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. We're going to ask you a couple of questions that our supporters have submitted that only they will get to see on sure. Locals. Yeah. But for now, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you guys for watching and listening. My pleasure. We'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. And this is a very good question from Clean Purple Bunny. What a name. Would you regret most about the British government's response to COVID and your fight against it? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.